Hello, Duncan Green here with the From Poverty to Power podcast. This one's a conversation I had recently with Deepak Nayar, who's Professor of Economics at uh, India's JNU University. We were talking about his new book, Resurgent Asia. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. So maybe the place to start is where you start with an economist called Gunnar Myrdal 50 years ago, who wrote a book saying that Asia was basically doomed. I mean, could you just remind us what he said and, and how did he get it so wrong? Mithal was, even if he saw the world through a Nordic lens, it was still a European perspective of Asia uh, with almost no history uh, that situated his analysis in the past. For Middal, life for Asia begins really at the end of the Second World War, uh, uh, with some reference to the interwar period. Uh, But how Asia came to be what it was circa 1950 had much to do with colonialism and imperialism of the preceding two centuries or 150 years that Medal largely ignored. However, uh, having said that, let me say that Medal got two things right for sure. First, he said you cannot study economies in isolation from social, political and historical factors, although he was rather short on history. Uh, And two, that institutions matter. In that sense, he was uh, before his time. Uh, Yet, he was uh, deeply pessimistic about Asia's prospects um, for reasons that have always characterized Western thinking about Asia. Uh, So whether it was Karl Marx or Max Weber, uh, they have similar views about, about the Asiatic mode of production, or about the absence of a Protestant rationality, a Protestant ethic. Um, but Mittal uh, made two mistakes, I think, in his judgment about the future of Asia. A, he believed, which was dominant thinking at the time, that economic openness did not offer any path to development for Asia, uh, just as he believed that the Asian governments in Asia, what he described as soft states, were simply not uh, capable of doing what was needed. And so as we talk about the book, uh, where he went wrong will become clear uh, because the opposite turned out to be true. Well, so tell us what happened instead. So, so Medal was writing at the sort of high point of what you call the Great Divergence. Yeah. Right? where suddenly Asia, well, by then, after 150 years of colonialism, Asia was incredibly poor relative to its population and relative to its historic position. And since then, it has resurged, as your book says. Could you talk us through the resurgence? Sure. Uh, you know, but before I do that, let me just tell your, your viewer uh, in three sentences what the book is about. Now, the objective of my book is to analyze the phenomenal economic transformation of Asia, which would have been difficult to imagine, let alone predict, 50 years ago. Uh, and Merdal was no exception. Now, in doing so, I provide an analytical narrative of this remarkable story of economic development, situated in historical perspective, 
and an economic analysis of the underlying factors with a focus on critical issues in the process of and outcomes in development. Now, just one more proposition. Given the size and the diversity of the Asian continent, uh, the aggregate level cannot suffice. It's not appropriate. Thus, in the book, as you would have seen, I disaggregate Asia into its four constituent subregions, East, Southeast, South and West Asia, and also into 14 selected countries, China, India, South Korea, Indonesia, Turkey, Taiwan, Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam and Sri Lanka. Now, I have listed these countries not in alphabetical order, uh, but in descending order of national income at market exchange rates, which I describe in the book as the Asian 14. Uh, but please note, taken together, they account for more than 80 percent of the population and the income of Asia. OK, now the underdevelopment and development of Asia uh, has its historical context. And that is really my first point of departure from Vidal. In 1820, two centuries ago, Asia accounted for two-thirds of world population and almost three-fifths of world income, where just two countries, China and India, accounted for one-half of world population uh, and one-half of world income. Now, the colonial era witnessed a precipitous decline in this economic significance. By 1962, the share of Asia in world population diminished to 50 percent and in world income, it plummeted to 15 percent. Uh, for China and India taken together, these shares dropped to about 35 percent of world population and only 8 percent of world income. Now, the outcome was the great divergence, which Mendal did not mention or recognize. Income per capita in Asia as a proportion of that in the West dropped from one half in 1820 uh, to less than one tenth in 1962. Uh, now, this was associated with what I call the great specialization, which meant that Western Europe produced manufactured goods uh, while Asia produced primary commodities. Consequently, the share of China and India in world manufacturing production collapsed from almost 50 percent in 1830 to 5 percent in 1962. The decline and fall of Asia, I argue, was attributable to its integration with the world economy through trade and investment shaped by colonialism and driven by imperialism. The so imperialism, imperialism deliberately suppressed manufacturing in countries like India, right? To keep it as a, a consumer of UK produced commodities. Yes, to begin with, it protected British industry or French industry from manufacturers that came from from Asia because Europe traditionally ran a huge trade deficit with Asia. And as Europe industrialized, uh, both the imposition of free trade uh, and the, 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 the kind of reduction in geographical barriers meant that industry could no longer compete, and these countries became increasingly sources of primary commodities. 
Therefore, the industrialization of Western Europe and the deindustrialization of Asia were, in fact, two sides of the same coin, which had a devastating impact on China and India. Now, the transformation of Asia over the past 50 years reflected in its, its demographic transition, social progress and economic development has been phenomenal. Uh, in 1970, it was the poorest continent in the world, poorer than Africa, marginal except for its large population. By 2016, there was a remarkable change in its economic importance. Its share of world GDP rose from less than 10% to more than 30%, while its income per capita surpassed that of developing countries and converged towards that of the world, although the convergence was at best modest when compared with industrialized countries because the initial income gap was so enormous. Now, growth in GDP and GDP per capita in Asia was much higher throughout this 50-year period uh, than in the world economy, industrialized countries and developing countries, uh, including Latin America and Africa. Now, over this period, the share of Asia in world manufacturing value added and in world manufactured exports jumped from 4% to 40%. Its share of world trade jumped from 8% to 32%. Similarly, its share of world investment. Now, rising per capita incomes were associated with a transformation in social indicators of development as infant mortality rates fell sharply, while life expectancy and literacy rates rose sharply everywhere. Rapid economic growth also led to a massive reduction in absolute poverty. However, and that's the irony, the scale of absolute poverty that persists despite this unprecedented growth is just as awesome, as striking as the reduction therein. Uh, the poverty reduction, I argue, could have been much greater, but for the rising inequality. Inequality okay. between. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the obvious next question um, is, what's the secret? How did Asia do this? Um, and then if you could talk us through some of the factors behind this uh, resurgence, and then maybe we can get on to whether that still applies to the rest of the developing world or what lessons can be learned. But perhaps just talk us through the, the factors that drove this amazing transformation. Okay, let me mention just a few. Uh, the economic transformation of Asia in the past 50 years, as I said, provides a sharp contrast with the decline and fall of Asia in the colonial era during the preceding 150 years. Now, unlike Latin America and Africa, most countries in Asia did have a long history of well-structured states and cultures which were not entirely destroyed by colonialism. Thus, for Asian countries, political independence, which restored their economic autonomy and enabled them to pursue national development objectives was an important underlying factor and driving motivation in their quest for catch-up. Okay? Uh, two, uh, in a radical departure from the stagnation in colonial times, over the past 50 years, rates of growth in Asia, its constituent sub-regions, and most of the Asian 14 were unprecedented, uh, not just for them, but in history, in human history. Now, Investment and savings, which rose rapidly and were much higher than elsewhere in the developing world, were the drivers of growth on the supply side. 
Middal did not think it was possible. Nobody did at that time. Savings rates of 5%, investment rates 4%. Now, the, the spread of education in society and the provision of health care for people, which contributed to human capital formation, along with the creation of a physical infrastructure, which eased constraints on the supply side, were the sustained drivers of growth in economies in countries that were success stories, some much more than the others. And on the demand side, growth was primarily investment-led and private consumption expenditure-led. Now, there are two issues which are at the heart of the debate, Duncan, uh, about uh, Asia. And people uh, with on opposite sides of the ideological divide, often cite or invoke the Asian experience as a validation of their hypothesis. Yeah? And that is about the nature of economic openness and about the role of the state. Let me say these are two big issues which made a difference in Asia. Now, economic openness, I would say, has performed a critical supportive role in Asian development wherever it has been in the form of a strategic integration with, uh, rather than a passive insertion into the world economy. Analysis of the industrialization experience in the Asian 14 shows that openness, while necessary, was not sufficient. It was conducive to industrialization only when combined with industrial policy. Now, if you want me to, I can explain just with a couple of examples what industrial policy was about. Would you like? Yes, to? please. I mean, yeah. I was interested in before you do that. I was interested in in the way the book talks about the difference between how strong states manage this and how weaker states manage this. The difference between kind of efficiency mm-hmm. and checks and balances. So I'm hoping you're going to go in that direction as well. well I, uh, immediately after I explain industrial policy, I will go to that. Thank okay. You. Let me cite some examples, although practices varied across countries and changed over time. Trade policy was characterized by an asymmetry, as it was open for the export sector, but restrictive for other sectors. While exchange rates were overvalued for long periods to support the entry of domestic manufactured goods into world markets, because price is often a substitute for quality or established brand names, Regimes for foreign investment or foreign technology were calibrated to facilitate uh, industrialization. The allocation of private investment to selected sectors uh, uh, was often influenced by the strategic use of differential interest rates or tax concessions. Interest rates, South Korea followed Japan. Taiwan used tax concessions. And so did, say, India later. Now, Industrial finance was provided through development banks. Most important, perhaps, there was a coordination of policies across sectors over time. So it was sensible industrial policy implemented by effective governments that made the difference. So this is this is really this is really different from the sort of get the prices right, get the state out of the market sort of mantras of the 80s and 90s. Absolutely. But now let me come to the second question. I think governments performed a critical role, ranging from leader to catalyst or supporter in the economic transformation of Asia spanning half a century. While their 
willingness and ability to do so depended on the nature of the state, which in turn was shaped by politics. Now, I believe that the state, unlike the ideologues, I believe that the state and the market are both institutions evolved by humankind to organize economy and, and society. Uh, that the state and the market are complements, not substitutes. And the two institutions must adapt to each other in a cooperative manner over time. Success and development in Asia was about managing this evolving relationship between states and markets, and by finding the right balance in their respective roles, which also changed over time. Now, countries where governments did not or could not perform this role and were unable to, to evolve their role vis-a-vis markets lagged behind in development. Now, the Asian experience suggests that efficient markets and effective governments in tandem together provided the way forward to development. Now, let me come to that distinction between hard states and soft states you know, uh, that Medal made. Uh, although now people describe uh, East Asia as developmental states. Now, the developmental states in South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore, for which Japan was the role model, which could coordinate policies across sectors over time in the pursuit of national development objectives, using carrot and stick to implement their agenda, led the economic transformation of these countries, enabling them to become industrialized nations in just 50 years. It had never happened before. However, the nature of these states was an outcome of circumstances in history and conjuncture that were very specific to them. Uh, if you like, I can always explain it. China, very different from these, emulated these developmental states in an altogether different political context and with much success. And Vietnam has followed two dec decades later on the same path, uh, as both countries have strong one-party communist governments with clear objectives that could coordinate and implement policies. Now, I believe that it is not possible to replicate these developmental states elsewhere in Asia. Even so, other countries in the Asian 14, where states were less effective in implementing their agenda, which is what Merdal worried about, governments did manage to introduce economic policies and evolve institutional arrangements that were conducive to industrialization and development. Now, in these countries, I am convinced that it is only institutionalized checks and balances that can make governments more development-oriented and people-friendly. This is obviously more feasible, and this is a debatable proposition, I argue, uh, in political democracies than it is in authoritarian regimes. Now, for Asia's continuing journey in development during the next 25 years, uh, democracy has flaws, democracy has flaws, uh, has, has warts, democracy can be manipulated, but it is better than the alternatives, not only for the rights and freedoms it provides to citizens, but also for the checks and balances and the self-correcting mechanisms it provides for political systems when things go wrong. So that's, I mean, in terms of the rest of the world, that's quite a, an optimistic message because the rest of the world can't just wave a magic wand and invent a, a strong state. But you're saying that even in places where you have messy, semi-effective democracies, 
states can take off if they get the checks and balances in place. So that Absolutely. is that's quite a good that's a, a good yeah. lesson for the rest in of the world from the Asian go- experience. Governments can be made development friendly, uh, development oriented, and people friendly if they are accountable to citizens, and they are more likely to be accountable to citizens uh, in political democracies than they are in authoritarian regimes, particularly if we are thinking ahead. Now, we need to recognize that democracies have weaknesses, that democracies evolve slowly, yet I argue that they are better than any available alternative in much the same. So sitting in London, one of the big challenges for the development and aid community of fragile and conflict affected states. That's where the aid budgets around the world are, are, are moving. And those are places where the state is either absent or predatory or very incompetent. So what the lesson I take from your book is that in those places, there is no shortcut. You have to engage with politics and political transformation if you're ever to get that economic transformation. You can't short circuit to a Rwanda or an Ethiopia if the political conditions don't, don't, won't allow it. Is that a fair reading? Absolutely. That is what I would argue. And I am not, let me stress, Duncan, a pessimist about Africa. I think it is possible for Africa to do in the next 50 years what Asia did in the past 50 years, because Africa is land abundant, natural resource abundant, uh, and uh, has enormous potential. But this potential can be harnessed if and only if there is a political transformation in the nature of the states in Africa, where they are people friendly, where they are development oriented, you see that there is some change. Uh, but where they're about rents, uh, where they're about capturing and retaining power, uh, things are not working out well. But it has to begin, I believe, with a political transformation because the role of the governments is critical. And then different countries will find different ways of coming to political settlements, as it were, uh, between governments, uh, economic elites, political elites, uh, and in seeking legitimacy, doing something for people. So let me just sort of go slightly sideways and then I'll come back to, to which is, yeah. it's interesting, you know, you said at the beginning that um, Myrdal had a very Nordic view of the world. And there's an enormous debate within academia. I teach at the LSE about decolonizing academia. And to what extent is the misunderstanding that Myrdal showed and the misunderstanding that has systematically appeared to come through international institutions, the product of the Western gaze and the fact that we don't, there aren't enough authors like you writing from within developing countries and getting the profile that they deserve to challenge some of these misunderstandings. Do you see yourself as a decolonial warrior? Well, I don't know whether that's the best description, but yes, you know, I think for too long, uh, the developing world and Asia as part of that developing world have been seen through European eyes. You know, I, I wrote a book six years ago called Catch Up, Developing Countries in the World Economy, which was about Latin America, Africa and Asia in the world economy in historical perspective, mostly 1820, 1950 compared with 1950, 2010, but also going back to 1500. Yeah. Now, that perhaps was the first 
book, even if I say so, which which saw the world economy evolve through the eyes of developing countries. Almost everything else has been a European perspective. Now, it is true that this study also is perhaps amongst the few, I think it's probably the first, that has actually looked at all of Asia from an Asian perspective. And there's a companion volume, which I sort of conceptualized, commissioned, edited, which does something very different, but it also has a very large proportion of scholars from Asia contributing to it. So, in a sense, we are trying to understand the process of underdevelopment and development through Asian eyes. And I think it is very important that this happened in Africa, that this happened in Latin America, too. Uh, for too long, uh, you know, colonial mindsets have survived, uh, but in very different ways in, in, in our times, you know, because there's a kind of intellectual uh, colonialism, too, because... Uh, uh, most people get trained in Western universities, and uh, unless they happen to be heterodox, uh, they tend to begin to think in that same mode. Well, I they do wonder. Very... I mean, I do. This is an interesting question. At the moment, we're we're doing an analysis of LSE reading lists to see, you know, how diverse or undiverse they are, and there's a big discussion about whether an author who was born somewhere like India but teaches somewhere like Harvard should be seen as Indian or US or something sort of in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> um, do you think, I mean, what's your advice to us on that one? And to what extent were you contaminated by studying at Oxford? <laughs> well, I learned from being at Oxford, uh, but whether or not I was contaminated was my doing, uh, one way or the other. I think I was able to distance myself from it, but, yeah. used, but used the learning. Yeah? You had colonial uh, isolation. Yeah, but but I do think that on, on the answer to your your curious question, uh, that I do think that those who are who have spent much of their lives in the United States, United Kingdom, or France, or Germany, uh, or say from the age of twenty, uh, whether or not they remain Indian citizens is a matter of law huh? uh, or the letter. But the spirit is. They live in, in the industrialized world. Now, this is not meant to be normative. I don't judge people. All I'm saying is that the way there is a, a kind of imperialism in the profession of economics, not just vis-a-vis -vis the social sciences, uh, but if you just look at, say, Nobel Prizes, uh, uh, if you look at the sciences, most of them have been in the Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, there are relatively few, for, say, from Japan or even from continental Europe. And if you look at economics, uh, there was only one non-American, non non-Anglo-Saxon, non-European. There haven't been that many Europeans either, except for Tinberg and, and Hayek and, and, and Mirjal himself. Um, the, who, uh, Arthur Lewis, who, was, who lived in England, but he was from Jamaica, and Amartya Sen, and now we have uh, Abhijit Banerjee who also lives in the United States. So I think your reading lists need to be more diverse and bring some people, more people, uh, into that uh, domain who live and work in Asia or Africa or Latin America. Noted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're fast running out of time, um, Deepak. So I wanted to ask... <clears throat> a, for very so quite short responses, I'm afraid, on three 
of the reasons which you mentioned in the book, which might make it difficult for other countries, other regions to follow the examples of Asia. And that is the rise of populism and whether politics has become more toxic for this kind of uh, feedback driven democratic development. Technology has the sort of the advance of technology, in fact, made um, low intensity manufacturing much more difficult as a way in to the onto the ladder. And then third is the environmental question of is the sheer uh, threat to the planet posed by carbon emissions mean that that early stage of dirty growth is no longer possible and we don't know what replaces it. So three very big questions, which I'm going to ask for short answers to, if you can. Um, I, I will do my start best. off with the populism uh, one. Yeah. You know, if we think of the future of Asia, there are significant political challenges uh, embedded in a profoundly changed context in terms of global political economy. Uh, In the past 25 years, when Asia formed this miracle, uh, uh, the world was both Asia-friendly and development-friendly. A rapid expansion in international trade, a rapid expansion of international capital flows, relatively open markets. Now, uh, what has happened is that there is a political backlash of resurgent nationalisms, which exploits fears about openness in trade and in immigration as a threat to jobs. Now, uh, the irony is that uh, these resurgent nationalisms, uh, populist, nationalists, xenophobic on the right, which I describe as as toxic, are in the industrialized countries, are, I think, at least in part attributable to the rise of Asia in the world economy. Uh, But these resurgent nationalisms are not limited to industrialized countries. They exist also in developing countries uh, where you have nationalist, populist, uh, sort of xenophobic leaders uh, who exploit ethnic divides, religious divides, rampant corruption to oust incumbent incumbents and then capture political power. Now, in, 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 in developing countries, I think, uh, these research and nationalisms are partly attributable, particularly in Asia, uh, but also Latin America, to rising economic inequality between countries and among people, which has followed this Asian miracle, which has been part of this Asian miracle. Uh, The second question is about uh, the technological revolution, correct? Uh, Uh, You know, the world of artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, 3D printing, what will it mean for Asia? Uh, And certainly, uh, at first sight, it would appear that... uh, the, the, the path of labor-intensive manufactured exports uh, may not be easily available uh, to follow in the footsteps of Asia, even among Asian countries that are latecomers or laggards. Um, now, there is a possibility that technological change will substitute capital or technology for labor. Hmm? So labor will no longer be used or that there will be a reshoring of production, uh, the offshoring and the global value chains after the disruption of, by the way, the the pandemic 
could also be an added incentive to move production back uh, to industrialized countries. Um, but evidence available suggests that this will not happen across the board, uh, that uh, this will in, 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 in sort of consumer and producer electronics, uh, in automobiles, this will happen. Uh, robotics, uh, labor-saving technologies. But it will not happen in labor-intensive manufactured goods, textiles, clothing, shoes. It will not happen in resource-based manufacturers, furniture, so on. Uh, but more than that, Duncan, I want to say that if we look at the past two centuries, every time... We have been in the early stages of what has subsequently been dubbed as an industrial revolution. There have been such fears that the world will no longer be the same. My own view is that, uh, yes, it will be disruptive. Okay? Uh, employment will contract in many sectors significantly before it expands in other sectors. Yeah? So there will be destructive problems of transition. But if we think of the long term, uh, technological change has always, and you know, when these problems arise, uh, we have to find ways, and human ingenuity has found ways. Uh, we have to uh, rethink goods, and we have to reskill people. Uh, but technology has always advanced both production possibility frontiers and consumption possibility frontiers uh, for humankind. Uh, it will be, as I said, the costs of transition are high, but in the long run, the benefits may be greater. Third, um, your question of uh, uh, what about climate change? Uh, oh, or more, more generally, what about environmental limits? It, stri- it strikes me that there's a there's a division within economics between those who consider the economy as essentially an open system and increasingly those who consider it as a closed system with boundaries, and that that has a very fundamental impact for what you consider feasible economic policies in the long term. So just how do you wrestle with that? It's a difficult problem to wrestle with. There can be no question that uh, if Asia continues to grow at the rates it has in the past 25 years, uh, or even at somewhat slower rates in the next 25 years, uh, it is going to contribute to environmental degradation. Look at just China and India, uh, enormous mega economies. Uh, their you know, uh, per capita levels of consumption of energy are low. Their income elasticity of demand for energy is high. Yeah? Uh, and their CO2 emissions just between these two Asian giants could be huge. Now, sadly, there's not much we can learn from history over the past Two centuries, industrialization, economic growth, development have all been driven by fossil fuels. Uh, now, while I worry about the environmental consequences of economic growth, I also recognize, uh, and I remember Bertolt Breck, who once said that those who have eaten their fill speak to the hungry of the wonderful times to come. It's very hard to persuade people to lower their living standards when they aspire to better living standards. So I think, the, the, to me, this, there is one silver lining in the cloud. More, you know, we cannot continue with business as usual or more of the same. But I think there is a growing consciousness among people, among citizens in Asian countries about the environmental consequences of rapid economic growth. This is visible both in China 
and in India. Uh, the response of people to growing pollution. And I think all these public bads come to be regulated if and only if their consequences exceed limits of tolerance on the part of people. And I think that threshold is in the process of being reached hmm? uh, in China, in India, and in a number of large the, the Southeast Asian countries. So ultimately, uh, I would not be surprised if these countries themselves, in their self-interest, by the way, there will be no, no climate change agreement. There will be no meeting of international obligations. That is, is as clear as daylight. But these countries will have to do it themselves. Uh, and we are beginning to see evidence of the use of solar energy in Asia. Uh, in China, it's phenomenal. Uh, they are producing the world's photovoltaic cells. In India, it's growing rapidly, uh, just as we are seeing an attempt to evolve cleaner technologies. Now, that is coming partly from regulation, but also from local R&D. So while I worry, much as any good citizen of the world should, I'm not a pessimist. I think maybe we will find solutions to this. Uh, however, more of the same will be very difficult to sustain uh, in terms of uh, environmental degradation. Okay, Deepak Naya, that's a, a wonderfully optimistic and informed way to end the conversation. So thank you very much for coming on, uh, on From Poverty to Power. Um, Deepak's book, Resurgent Asia, is available online. I presume no one's going to bookshops for a while yet, but you can always order it online. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Duncan.